raised by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? To episode 115 of the Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris. Thanks very much for joining us. This time around, I have chosen to bring back to the show a man who I've had on a couple of times, plus also once on the See Here podcast, music journalist specializing in Australian music, the wonderful Ian McFarlane. Welcome back to the show, Ian. Thanks, Morris. That's very, very nice of you, the wonderful Ian McFarlane. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, really, I thought that was your official title, that you know, every time you're introduced, oh, right. hello, I'm the wonderful Ian McFarlane. It should be Excellent. if it's not. And we're going to be talking about an album that I know you have a lot of love for, and certainly a band that I know you have a lot of love for, Tamim Shud and their debut album, Evolution, although we'll probably be spending a little bit of time talking about another album of theirs that I know that you have really strong feelings about, Galushanites and the Real People. But we'll be talking about their history and where they came from and basically how they were two bands, you know, the Sunsets and what became Tamim Shud, two very different bands. But before we get into that, I just sort of wanted to be asking, so what's been happening with you lately? And I know like last year you released the second edition of the Australian Encyclopedia Encyclopedia of Rock and Pop. So how's that been going? The sales and people have been contacting you to talk about it. What's been happening with you since you released that? Yeah, look, um, things have been ticking over nicely. I had some good sales, obviously, last year and things kind of levelled off. So, I mean, I've sold quite a few copies. I've still got a bit of stock and um, people can still order through my website, which I would like to mention, which is www.thirdstonepress.com.au and people can explore the shop there and also I've got a little archives page which uh, I've uh, put up a lot of my writings from recent years so yeah look I was very happy with it probably been out for about 15 months or thereabouts Mm. and people keep asking me about it which is nice its sales were trickling along nicely actually later in the year well in the next I think it's October, I've been invited to do a little sort of talk at the Paran History Library. Oh, wow. And uh, based on the librarians in Paran really liking the encyclopedia, just going to explore Paran as a rock and roll town, you know, there's there's lots <laughs> of... Um, yeah, there's lots of uh, interesting stories about Paran and lots of interesting concert venues and gigs. Um, well, the, the Station Hotel was a big mecca well, for pub rock fans, wasn't it? Exactly. That's right. That was one of the main you know, pub rock venues in Paran. And there was also uh, Garrison Disco. Um, there was the Opus Dance, which was the uh, at the Ormond Hall. There was the Reefer Cabaret also mm. at the Ormond Hall. So, yeah, you know, just the usual kind of historical sort of things. Other than that, just in recent times, just we'll get on to this later on, but still contributing some liner notes to the Aztec Records releases and just some uh, other bits and pieces for uh, Brian Wise's magazine called uh, Sounds of the City, where I, uh, I look back into, you know, more historical retrospective sort of 
articles. I did a, did a big piece on the original TF Much Ballroom in Melbourne, mm. the very famous ballroom in the early 70s, and you know a few other things like that. That's about it. Just so to, for the people living in Australia and the people certainly overseas who may have been living under a rock or haven't heard the previous episodes that you'd appeared on of the podcast, just briefly sort of go through what's the story behind the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop. What's the format? Oh, well, typically Encyclopedia format A to Z. It's just uh, an exploration of as many major and independent and obscure bands as I could possibly fit in A to Z from the obvious ACDC to Zoot. It's got uh, just about everyone you could think of, of note. There's lots of independent bands from recent years I wasn't able to incorporate. There was just too much to write, so I stuck to the main bands. You know, your big bands like um, Tame Impala and Empire of the Sun and newer names like Courtney Barnett. So they're all in there, plus all the old favourites from the way back to the 50s, Johnny O'Keefe, Cold Joy. It was basically 1956 to nine, uh, 2016, so as much as I could include, and the second edition's a bit over 500 pages and it's got a thousand entries, you know, individual entries. So it's pretty much just like a potted history of a lot of the band. Listeners out there who want to get a copy of the Australian Encyclopedia of Rock and Pop, they can get it from thirdstonepress.com.au. Now listen! Just filling you in that... Later on in the program, the Album I Love segment, which is normally very, very capably handled by Eric Reanimator. Eric is taking a couple of months break. If uh, you're a regular listener to the program, you would have realised that his Love That Album, the compilation edition episode for this month, was taken over by Terry Frost, host of Paleo Cinema. And next month, it will be hosted by Tom Quee, who does the Alpha Beatallica podcast. But the Album I Love segments for the main show are going to be handled by my good friend Dave Blom. And this episode around, he felt that a good companion piece with the Tamim Shud discussion was going to be talking about the debut EP for Tame Impala. Now, I didn't mm. even realise that this was released. I just always thought, like I guess a lot of other people, that they started with in a speaker. But Dave is here to educate me and educate you fellows too and see what you think. That will come up somewhere in the middle of the show. And then at the end of the program, I'll talk about what is going on in the next episode of Love That Album, but we still have this episode to get through. So I should also mention that as well as talking about Tamim Shud in the first part of the program, uh, in the next part of the program, taking advantage of the fact that I have Ian here who writes liner notes for a lot of the Aztec music re-releases, will be discussing a very important just re-released anthology and three albums that I've found out that are on the horizon sometime to be released before the end of 2018. So I want to just get some thoughts from Ian as to what these collections are all about. So uh, that'll be in the latter half of the show. But what we'll do now is we'll go to a quick break, come back, and we'll start talking Tamim Shud. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 115 with Morris and Ian. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes Store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Love That Album and start a music-related discussion. 
When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Cicerese is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. Thanks very much for downloading the show. And it's me on this end and Ian McFarlane on the other end of a phone line. We're here specifically to discuss evolution by Tamim Shad, but as I like to do on this program, I want to discuss events leading to the mm. album being recorded. And in the case of evolution, as I've read from your liner notes on the Aztec Records edition that came out about a year ago or so, it's not necessarily a remarkable story, but it certainly does show about, no pun intended, the evolution the band <laughs> made to get to that point, basically following the musical trends of the day. And the album was released in 1969, I should point out, and also what an incredibly hard-working band they were. So I would like to know if you could start telling us a little bit about the period when they started out as a surf band called The Four Strangers, which led into them calling themselves The Sunsets, which is essentially the same sort of music. But tell us a little bit about The Four Strangers and The Sunsets. Well, look, you know, obviously they were very much a typical teenage jobbing band in the early 60s. I think they came together in about 1963, originally as The Strangers, but then there was a Melbourne band also known as The Strangers who were probably a lot more proficient and more popular. So this young quartet, which was basically Lindsay Bier, Zatzik, Nick, Eric Connell and Danny Davidson, and they were originally from Newcastle. enamoured with the surf music sounds of local bands, the Atlantics, but then obviously all the European instrumental masters like the Shadows and any of those sort of American surf bands like the Ventures. So yeah, they started out as a surf instrumental band. And eventually, Lindsay Bier started adding his vocals to some of the songs and they kind of changed their style eventually. But yeah, they started out as Strangers, then they became the Four Strangers and then they released a couple of singles on festival records in about 1964, 65. And so then 
then they started getting gigs in Sydney, became a lot more uh, popular, and by the time they had started playing gigs in Sydney around 1965, you know, bands like the Easy Beats and Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and Ray Brown and the Whispers were kind of the big guys. These were young dudes just trying to make their way. They were playing places like the uh, Surf City, where the Aztecs and the Whispers and those bands like that had played. And so, yeah, they were following in the footsteps of all the well-known bands. And, you know, they were getting their name out there. They ended up changing their name to the Sunset because they just seemed a little bit more interesting. They actually got the new name because there was a competition held on local radio station 2HD and someone came up with a new band name, The Sunset. And of course that immediately tied them in with this whole sort of surfing experience as well. But yeah, they were pretty much by that stage, they were just a typical sort of R&B pop band. Some of their singles like When I Found You were a bit sort of lightweight harmony vocals, Mm -hmm. uh, vocal pop, but then other tracks such as The Hot Generation. I Want Love were just these amazing garage beat songs, you know, surging, punked up slices of R&B. And, you know, they had a thumping hard beat, nice kind of R&B licks and wheezing Vox organ. So just a really, really great sound. So they were evolving very quickly. So, you know, by about 1967, when the Hot Generation single was out, they were just a really hard-thumping R&B band. A lot of their songs ended up on um, those vinyl collections on the original Raven records, things like Ugly Things Mm, and mm. um, Ugly Things 2. So um, that's how they became more known in the 80s. But even though they did a couple of surf soundtracks, A Life in the Sun and The Hot Generation, for Paul Witzig for his surfing movies, they weren't really a surf band as such. I don't think they ever really considered themselves to be that but look by 1967 they were changing again Lindsay Bier was always very forward-looking by 1967 68 you know the big names were Cream Jimi Hendrix Experience Jefferson Airplane The Doors Love bands like this and basically the Sunsets were one of the very first local bands to embrace that new sort of style and the, and the guys started taking LSD and undertaking new experiences so the band sound was changed very very rapidly and and Lindsay Bierre was starting to write newer, um, more kind of ripping material in that vein. You know, and other bands like Tully had started in Sydney. So they were very much at the head of that kind of burgeoning early uh, or late psychedelic, early progressive rock scene. So they definitely had a very, very evolving sound. So by 1968, they basically were just a very different band. And they were no longer the Young Guns, the Sunsets, who were playing just kind of typically beat R&B, garage music. They'd really moved on. They started improvising and writing longer songs, but they still had a bit of a flair for pop economy and a bit of jazz influences but you know like by 1968 they really needed to change the name from the sunset and they came up with this incredibly strange and interesting name Tamim Shad as uh, Lindsay Bierre explained to me he'd been reading 
the Rubaiyat, which was a book of very flowery verse by Omar Khayyam. He was like a Persian poet from, I don't know, where the 10th or 11th century or something like that. So once he'd found this book, the Rubaiyat, it had actually been popularised in the 19th century by an English writer and translator called Edward Fitzgerald. And by the 60s, it was one of those kind of books that people in the emergent hippie culture had had gravitated to books like the Rubaiyat and the Tibetan Book of the Dead and yes. the, the Doors of Perception and even Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Lindsay was definitely into all this kind of stuff. He found the, the words Tamim Shad, which simply means the very end in Persian, at the end of the Rubaiyat. I even found a copy myself. I'm a, obviously a reproduction, a more recent modern reproduction. And yeah, it's a beautiful little book. There are the words Tamim Shad right at the end of the book. So it basically means the end or the finish. But it just sounded right. It just kind of had this aura for this new band that was emerging from the kind of R&B group The Sunset suited the music and uh, the music suited the name so this was Lindsay and his band members um, evolving and becoming Tamim Shad. The original bass player Eric Connell had uh, moved on and a new young guy called Peter Barron took his place. They were one of the, the big bands on the Sydney touring circuit and they played with groups like Tully and the Nutwood Rug Band and Jeff St John and the Id, all these incredible new bands, you know, and on, on all the Melbourne bands, you know, Spectrum and Chain and, uh, you know, all those kind of bands were, were starting to emerge. So it was a very exciting period. We're talking 68 into 69, the early days of progressive rock. You can still categorise Tamim Shad at this point as psychedelic rock rock or acid rock you know if you want to pigeonhole it and i like genre description gives me sure. a, a chance to explain what the music's about and it kind of suits the mood of what tamim shad were trying to achieve at that time they were trying to be free improvisation mood of the moment and all those kinds of things is what what this early progressive rock sort of sound was was about but they still definitely had that bluesy trace still evident in the kind of heavier psych rock moment so they didn't lose the basis of the music. Um, they just kind of added to it. Songs were getting longer. It was just this whole kind of inspirational progression that they were aiming for. So by that time, they were ready to leap into the studio. So let's talk a little bit about events leading up to the studio. Now, I seem to recall a lot as a kid seeing in the newspaper cinema section that there'd always mm. be somewhere that was showing a surf film of some sort or other. But it wasn't until like May maybe a few years ago that I actually saw my first fully fledged surf film which was <laughs> okay. Albie Falzon's Morning of the Earth one of the listeners to the podcast says he watches the film every year and urged <laughs> me to watch it so which I did, but Tamim Shad had been commissioned by a fellow called Paul Witzig to write the music for his film 
Evolution, which included some of the songs that are on the first Tandem Shard Evolution, but also I think you say the, the Hot Generation was written for a surf film and A Day in the Life was a surf film at the time. And as a quick aside, there's a fantastic compilation put out by David Lang and Stephen McParland from a couple of years ago called A Life in the Sun, which is not just Australian surf music, but Australian music written for surf films, which I think how wonderful, how niche that is. And I mean that in a good way. I just think it's so exciting that there are people who are willing to do that research and put compilations like that together. But I just wanted to know something about your link to surf films. Had you watched many growing up or in recent years? Before I get into my sort of side of the story there. It's great that you mentioned the compilation of Life in the Sun because it is fantastic and Stephen McParland is like the master of writing about the history of, of surfing and surf music and surf films in Australia. He's, he's a great guy. I've interviewed him and uh, he's very knowledgeable and it's interesting that you do mention Morning of the Earth. That's the archetypal surf film and I remember it as a kid. The soundtrack was huge. I mean, uh, Morning of the Earth, G. Wayne Thomas was the big hit. The forces of the universe and the elements of space Conjured up your being, your size, your time, your shape You were created with all the beauty they could call And earth you surely are the measure of them all and Tamim Shad contributed three tracks, and that was in 1972, so we're kind of getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Sure. But that's the archetypal, that's the point where, in Australia, I think the surfing film and the surfing scene and the surfing movement and people involved in that all coalesced. Um, Morning of the Earth was a very important movie. Uh, I just remember, even as a kid, knowing that how important that movie was and I didn't see it at the time but I've since seen it and it is it is a great movie it's just one of those typically magical movies to watch and the music really enhances it and so that was the point of these surfing films they were about showing the lifestyle and having a great rock music soundtrack to it and Morning of the Earth is probably the most important Australian surfing film it's, it is wonderful to watch but I didn't see a lot of them obviously until much later um, I ended up picking up Oh, probably God, 20 odd years ago now, a whole bunch of, you remember the old VHS tapes? Mm, um, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I bought a copy of Evolution, um, Morning of the Earth, The Hot Generation, Crystal Voyager. I just wow. managed to find them at the time and I started watching them. But yeah, I'd investigated the soundtrack and the Morning of the Earth film soundtrack, um, the LP is sensational. It's been reissued. Oh, look, honestly, I've got about four different CD editions of uh, the Morning of the Earth soundtrack. It, I love it. It's just great. It's really, I think, an essential yeah. Australian album. And I mm. wish I'd gotten my act together. I think, was it the 30th or 35th anniversary yeah. where they had a screening, I think, at the Regent Theatre here in Melbourne and yeah. had as many musicians who recorded on the original album as they could to play the soundtrack live and I just think that would have been fantastic. Were you at I would have loved to have seen that as well. Yes, I wasn't able to get to that as well. I think the 40th anniversary, what they did was they got a lot of current musicians to record their versions of it. So there, there is a release where it's the original soundtrack 
plus all the bonus tracks and then all the new artists doing their versions of the soundtrack songs. So that was a wonderful idea. So look, Tamim Shub was part of that and G. Wayne Thomas produced that. But going back into the 60s, yes. now the important thing is what we're talking about is the earliest Australian surfing films. There's one called The Surfing Years, which has a soundtrack by Python Lee Jackson, which is quite a nice find that Stephen McParlin included on A Life in the Sun. But there were bits and pieces of soundtrack albums, soundtrack singles and EPs that the Sunsets had to do with for um, Paul Witzig's early movies, A Life in the Sun and The Hot Generation. mentioned the Hot Generation track a little while ago and that was when the band was the Sunsets. Paul Witzig had already had a connection with the band and even though as I said the Sunsets weren't a surfing band or a surf music band they were uh, acknowledged by the people who made the surfing films as an important part of the process and included them on the soundtrack. They were all surfers though weren't they? Well, of course, I mean, they were the surfers themselves, but I think Lindsay Bier was at um, pains to explain to me they weren't a surf band mm. as such. I guess the important thing is they were had links to the local surfing culture, so that was that whole, as I was trying to explain, you know, the early surfing culture was about freedom of expression and expanding consciousness and getting back to nature. So Tamim Shad was very much at the kind of Australian epicentre of that whole kind of countercultural youth movement so they were tied to it so you know that's why people think of them as a surf music band but technically they were just basically a progressive rock band by that stage but that's a long way around of trying to explain <laughs> and lead into the segue now is into the recording of the evolution surfing film soundtrack so Paul Witzig had commissioned Tamim Shard this is late 1968 he was working on his new or newer surfing film Evolution and Paul Witzig hired some studio time and got the band in, just set up a screen and showed the film to the band. The band just basically jammed along in the studio to the visuals. That's how they got the music going and they actually had a couple of members from Tully come in and help out. Michael Carlos was the keyboard player in Tully mm -hmm. and there was also Richard Lockwood who was the who was the reed player and they came in and jammed with Tamim Shad while the film was screened so they basically just recorded that session and that was what Paul Witzig ended up using on the, the actual soundtrack of the movie Evolution and then there was a bit of studio time left over and Paul Witzig just basically said to the Tamim Shad guy look you've got you know another three hours two and a half hours you know you might want to record your next single so the band basically just took those next three hours and recorded a whole album which ended up being the evolution albums so what that means is that the recordings got a very kind of not perfect it's a very rough sort of sounding they basically just you know as i said laid it down improvised or well, by that stage i think they'd probably had most of the arrangements kind of worked out because they'd gotten over that whole improvisational or kind of organic evolution of cues to for the original actual soundtrack, which Paul Witzig used. So they basically laid down everything. It was basically their live show, I guess. It's got a bit of a you know rudimentary production sort of sound to it.
that's the thing. But, I can't um, seem to find any notes anywhere that says who was the engineer. I mean, I'm taking it there was no mm. producer as such, but no, I think it was just no. someone turned on the tape deck and let it run. So no producer, exactly. but surely there would have been some engineer of note, but there doesn't seem to be anything in the notes that says. No, I've never. there's nothing on the actual album itself to give that away. So yes, you're right. It's, I, I would love to kind of find out who the actual engineer was, but there's no reference to it at all in on the LP or in any other, any other kind of reference that I've seen. So what I'm trying to explain is that for the actual Evolution film soundtrack, that was the original recordings of things like the track Evolution, what else was there? I think there was a, a track called Lady Sunshine, I think was one of the tracks. I think you've said that the first three or four cuts off the album, so I'm No mm. One, Mr. Strange, Lady Sunshine, and Evolution and itself. That's right. Mm. Yeah, they're the actual songs that were recorded for the soundtrack. There's another one called A Song About Love, which wasn't um, re-recorded, but that was included on Stephen McParland's A Life in the Sun. Mm. Um, so that was quite a nice addition. So, so that's the original like Evolution film soundtrack. So the rec- even though the, it says those tracks are from the Evolution film soundtrack, these are the actual subsequent recordings that the band did for the next three hours, which were basically the same song, but they re-recorded them, and that's what became the album. So even though the album says they were as featured in Paul Witzig's movie Evolution, they are actually technically the album version as opposed to the soundtrack version. So to actually hear the original soundtrack versions, you have to watch the Evolution film. And yes, I've watched the Evolution film, although I haven't for a long time because, as I said, I've only got it on the old VHS tape. I don't even know whether it's now out on DVD. It may well be, but when you actually watch the Evolution film, the soundtrack, you can hear it's different because it's the earlier kind of improvisational cues. And it's also got Michael Carlos's Hammond organ in there as well. So they actually are very different from the LP or album versions. One thing that I sort of noted, and we will get into talking more about individual songs on the album, you've been speaking a lot about how this was, it was a very improvised session because I had three hours or whatever it was to get all these songs down and it was just pretty much engineered, turn the tape on and off they went. But the two things that sort of came to my mind were, obviously this was a band that had been playing tons and tons and tons of gigs, both as The Sunsets and as Tam and Shove, because they are an extreme tight band. Danny Davidson on drums sounds like he's trying to evoke his best buddy Rich. You're absolutely correct because he had a driving drum sound you know he pushes the music along he doesn't lay back um behind the beat you know he's always on top of it you know yeah, so absolutely. um uh, apparently he was a very very proficient drummer he actually did a lot of drumming with jazz big bands so he, even as a teenager he it's was no a very proficient drummer mm. yeah so you know he has that kind of style but he could play rock as well he definitely drives the the music along there's a lot of rhythmic shifts there's things like that there's a bit of there's still a little bit of improvisational vibe going on but 
it's quite structured. I think some of the arrangements lack kind of some kind of refinement, but that's the beauty of it. It's got that raw, honest kind of sound. It doesn't follow any mainstream trends of the day. The guitars have a bit of a clang along. That Zicknick, who ended up leaving the band after they recorded this, he actually has that classic Stratocaster sound. He played a Strat, he throws in bursts of feedback, solos, so he, he doesn't get too fancy. So that's where he kind of keeps the bluesy vibe with his guitar playing, but there's all this other kind of progressive psychedelic stuff going on. And to my mind, this is where this kind of overseas influence came in. Bands like Love, I can hear elements of that kind of sound, which is what the band had already taken in. Big Brother and the Holding Company, it has that same kind of vibe, but it's still a very, very heavy psych rock kind of sound, definitely. See, the thing, though, is even though I know they said that they took their influence at the time from what the trends were overseas, like you know, the Jefferson Airplane and from Cream and from Pink Floyd, and yet there's this thing that I know this has been a discussion amongst rock fans in pubs for eternity, but there's still <laughs> something that's very Australian about it. It's our spin, and I can't quite work out what it is. And a point in case is that Tannum Shud probably ended up being an influence on a lot of bands that came in their wake. And I think that I'd read that Glenn A. Baker had said that they were certainly a big influence on Midnight Oil. And just sort of listening over it again recently to the first Midnight Oil album, their self-titled album, I can completely get that. Hurst must have been a huge fan of Danny Davidson and this sound of the album it's that tough sound that became a big thing in the pubs in the early 70s I mean Australian rock music culture was developed in the pubs and I think it really starts off with bands like Spectrum with bands like Tamam Shud and with you know, then following on with Carson all these bands they have there's something of the prog rock that you've mentioned but there's still something of that bluesy, tough, down-to-earth sound that Australian rock music of the period was famous for. Oh, look, I think you're right. I think Tam Shud definitely blew a lot of young people's minds. It is no surprise that a band like uh, Midnight Oil would have been enthralled with a band like Tam Shud. They certainly would have seen them live. Tam Shud was still playing up until 1972. You know, all those young guys that were just starting out on the scene obviously looked up to bands like Tam Shud. But I think what you're trying to say about that sound, even though it is kind of influenced, drawing influences from overseas, I always say it's got that Aussie rock kind of vibe and pub rock sort of sound, which is hard to explain and pinpoint, mm. but you know it when you hear it. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing. That's it. It's got that Australian sound. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And even in more recent times, we can point to newer psychedelic bands like Big Name, like Tame Impala, for example. I mean, right. I think whether they understand it or not, you can see the thread all the way back to that kind of sound. And a band like Tame Impala or even Wolfmother, who have a bit more of a heavy metal-esque kind of sound, those young guys would have been listening to any of that sort of music from the late 60s, early 70s, which has that sound. 
definitely were a very, very influential band. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were a commercially viable pop band. They didn't have any hit singles to speak of. Their albums sold reasonable quantities, but they weren't a hit pop band. They were just influential. So that's the point. A band like Midnight Oil can certainly pinpoint where some of their influences came from. Definitely early in the piece. I'm talking even before their first album. That's where, you know, in particular, the evolution album album I think definitely has more of that sort of aggressive kind of bluesy sort of sound whereas with the album which we won't necessarily get to talk too much about it but the second album Galushanites and the Real People which is their in my estimation their masterpiece because it's a lot more progressive a lot more even progressive psych if you want to call it they had a slightly different sound by that stage because you know Tim Gazer joined and uh, he gave the, the music in that a lot more of a razor sharp guitar edge but with Evolution, I think that's definitely where the sound really took hold. I think that the one, I don't know, well, I don't want to say weak thing about it, but certainly the thing that betrays the fact that it's not a strongly produced album in that sense is how Lindsay Bear's rhythm guitar is fellow high up in the mix, and that would not have been the case with many other rock bands of the time, and his vocals really are mixed quite low in the mix it's almost like it's just another instrument and i'm not a great fan of the lyrics on this album to be honest i'll quite a couple of examples as we go but one example of where i think in a more conventionally produced album where the vocals would have been mixed up a bit is on i think it might have been the one single from the album that's the song lady sunshine for them. Do you think that this was an inspired single choice or they should have done one of the rockier tracks? I think Lady Sunshine ended up being a very interesting single. It's a little bit more of a ballad sort of thing. You know, it's got the acoustic guitars, you know, it's a little bit more sort of jazzy, perhaps a bit of jazzy touches. But Mm. then all of a sudden it bursts into life with a heavy rock chorus. So... No, I think that's as commercial as they actually got. I guess one of the things we can possibly mention is that because they'd recorded the tracks themselves, they basically shopped them around and CBS at the time put the album out and so they would have just said, oh, look, you know, we've got to have a single. So so that's what they came up with. So, yeah, I think that's probably the most commercial sounding one. It's a little bit different. Most of the tracks... I think have that very strong kind of psych rock sound like Music Train and Rock on Top, uh, Falling Up, Feel Free. They're a little bit more kind of forceful. The track that I particularly like, if we can start getting into individual tracks, yes, is, yes, um, absolutely. The, the, is the track Mr. Strange. Um.
That's what I was referring to before. That, to me, they'd been listening to Love's Forever Changes because the arpeggio guitar kind of sound, and then all of a sudden there's the rhythmic shifts and it's got a little, it's got a slight sort of Spanish kind of feel to it, which is what Love's album Forever Changes basically sounds like to me. That's a track where I can see where this overseas influence made a difference. There's another Spanish tinge track, It's a Beautiful Day, and I don't know whether they realised it at the time, but there's an LA band or one of the psychedelic 60s bands called It's a Beautiful Day, and they definitely kind of had that same vibe as well. A track called The Slow One and The Fast One, right. which is basically, I think, two songs kind of jammed together into one, yes. and that's a little bit more of that improvisational vibe. That's but- something I sort of wanted to follow up with. Some of these songs, they do sound like they were very deliberately composed, like... Lady Sunshine or Mr. Strange. absolutely, yeah, they're definitely arranged. But songs like Feel Free really sound like, okay, hang on, I'm going to go do this, and then we'll just go into an all-one-chord jam session (laughs) sort of thing. It's not a bad thing, it's just interesting to no. know that, well, let's I, I just see it, how efficiently we can do this. And it was a very different yeah. approach to what they did later on with Galushanites and the real people. Yes, exactly. Look, in the live situation, that's exactly what they would have been doing. You know, they would have been jamming. People look at bands like this and they obviously mention the overseas bands like the Ormond Brothers as jam bands. And, you know, I think Tamim Shad was one of those local bands that were doing that. I think what a lot of those bands were doing was they would have have a basic song structure and then they would allow a section where they could just go off into the lengthy jam. But then the musicians would be so engrossed in the music, they just, all they had to do was give each other a nod and they'd be back into the main theme of the song. These kind of bands were very good at doing that. They obviously had to have some structure in in the songs and then go off into the jam. So I guess uh, in the recording of Evolution, they kind of kept the jamming a little bit tighter, maybe. Well, we're coming back to what we were speaking before about the musicianship being really strong. This is a band that sounds like a band. They're not four individual great musicians. They're one band that sounds like they've been living and breathing and rehearsing and playing live. I keep hearing that the pub circuit of mm. the 70s was the toughest apprenticeship for a musician. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I think it's something that yeah. It seemed like it was just an accepted thing back then that you want to make it, you've got to pay your dues and you do that on the pub circuit. And certainly listening to this album, for all its, for all the fact that it's spontaneous in terms of you know the jammy bits in the middle, they really do sound like a band that everyone knows what the next guy is going to do. And it's absolutely so tight, so well thought out. And that song, Mr. Strange, though, that sounds like that's one of the composed songs rather than the one mm. that they came up with on the spot. And that's also along with the album Closer, Too Many Life. <laughs> Thank you. 
those two songs sound the most to me like Midnight Oil would have chosen to use as their blueprint. They sound very much like <laughs> songs that Midnight Oil could have picked into their early live sets before they'd gone and composed enough songs of their own to say, hey, we're going to do a couple of covers for you. And yes, they would have fit exactly. completely into what they did. Definitely. And I think the other thing, just going back to what you we were talking about, the band playing, where they were playing is, is kind of just before the pub scene unfolded in the early 70s. So by that late kind of 60s stage, they were playing more some of the discos in Sydney. They used to call them discotheques, but there was also, they were basically just doing concerts. So they would play at places like the Mandala Theatre in Sydney, Paddington Town Hall. So some of the larger kind of concert venues, I guess, they would play the university circuit. But anyway, the point is, they were basically just a gigging band. I mean, they were playing, playing, playing the whole time. So they definitely had their chops down. That That's the important thing. And then the later version of Tamim Shad, which was the Tim Gaze version, that was the band that toured more regularly and they would do the pubs, they came down to Melbourne, they played the Sunbury festivals and then they would do that whole kind of Melbourne circuit of the discos like that was still going then, like um, the Thumping Tum and they'd do the bigger concert halls such as the TF Much Ballroom and that sort of thing. I mean they just do it and do it. By 1972 after they'd done their contribution to the Morning of the Earth soundtrack, I, I think they just worked themselves into the ground because they split up at the end of 1972 and ended up doing other things, but they've reformed over the years with different lineups and things like that. But yeah, Lindsay Beard's still at the, at the head. Once again, that's a long way around of basically agreeing with what you're saying. They were just a, you know, they were just a hard-working rock band. They had it happening. It would have been interesting to see how they would have evolved yet again if they'd lasted through the 70s, because the music on the morning of the earth that Tamim Shad do sound a million miles away from either of those earlier two Tamim Shad albums. certainly a billion miles away from the sunsets. There's totally a, different, yeah. There's a gentleness, they have a flute player in there. I mean, it, mm. it fits in perfectly well with the rest of the music on the Morning of the Earth soundtrack, but it doesn't sound like the Tamim Shud of earlier. And that's not a criticism at all. I think it's wonderful, wonderful music. In fact, probably it's praiseworthy to sort of think, wow, that here's a band that said, right, we've done this. Let's not repeat ourselves. Let's do something different. And I would have just been fascinated to see what they would have done had they lasted through the 70s. Oh, no, absolutely. You know, they were just evolving so quickly. I mean, once they'd done Delusionites and they'd kind of got that heavy, progressive psych sort of stuff out of the system, they just continued to evolve. And you're absolutely right. You've hit the nail on the head. The tracks on the morning of the earth are just phenomenal because by that stage, Richard Lockwood, who was the flute player and reed player in Tully had joined. So he had a huge influence on the band's sound. They still had Tim Gaze, who was firing away on lead guitar. He's still a very propulsive guitar player. And by that stage, Lindsay Bierre was using a solid body telly. So he had a lot more of a, an electric rhythm guitar kind of going. They added a conga player. So they were able to continue the heavy sound, but had that very lyrical 
sound that uh, Richard Lockwood brought to the band on things like Bali Waters and First Things First from the Morning of the Earth soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And See the Swells is the other track from the Morning of the Earth soundtrack, which has a very, very propulsive kind of flowing bass line, and that's a beautiful song. But when they cranked out the amps and wound up the guitars in a you know, live theatre circuit or the concert circuit, they were still like a really heavy rock band. There's a couple of previously unreleased tracks that were recorded at the Regent Theatre from December 1971 that were added to the Galushanites and the Real People CD reissue. And they're just a they're just a mad rock band. They're still wailing away. So they were still a very, very heavy on the guitar. But yeah, definitely when Richard Lockwood wasn't kind of honking on the sax, he was playing very, very melodic lines on flutes and other reeds. But I think the point though, unfortunately, Morris, I think beyond 1972-73, Lindsay Bierre in particular wanted to change. He wanted to do more of that acoustic kind of sound. So he started a band called Albatross, which had more of a um, an acoustic kind of sound, a slightly gentler sound. So he got away from the heavier sound because they started to evolve, as I said, with Richard Lockwood's influence of his playing on Temmum Shud. But you know what? I really hate to think where they might have ended up because Albatross, the music of Albatross that Lindsay Bierre was creating was a lot kind of acoustic heat. But I don't think Temmum Shud would have been able to go in that direction simply because you've got to remember that Tim Gaze joined Ariel in 1973 and they were a really, really aggressive rock band in some ways. And then he went on to all sorts of other things. He had a great band in the later 70s, the Tim Gaze Band, and all sorts of things. So, you know what? I really don't think the Tamim Shud of the previous years, even though they might have evolved, would have suited the mid-70s. You've got to remember, the Countdown generation was just around the corner. Yeah, but they were never a band that would have fitted into the Countdown generation in any... No, I don't even think we can speculate what they might have have brought to the table. I don't even think I want to think about where they would have gone in the 70s because when they did actually reform in the 90s, once again, it was a very different sound. It was a very, very modern guitar sort of sound. I love that album they did in the 90s, Permanent Culture. I confess I haven't got to that one yet. Oh, my goodness. Get hold of it. Permanent Culture. (laughs) It is a fantastic record. In the 90s, when they reformed for a couple of years, you know, they got played on Triple J and um, all the likes of that track called Stay. Very, very funky, infectious kind of soaring slide guitar. So it was basically the same band, but like 25 years on, (laughs) almost. As you've indicated there, though, that they are certainly a band that were willing to take risks and willing to try new things and yeah maybe they would never have fitted into the countdown generation but they were certainly a band that would have appealed to an older audience and there was still i think 
room for them. Although, I mean, I guess maybe a lot of the bands that were part of what we'll call the Sunbury generation mm. may have moved on by 74, yeah. 75. Even the Aztecs and bands like that, the La Dars, Daddy Cool, they'd all changed or had broken up or changed their style. They moved with the times as well. I think Tamim Shad got out of the game, head of the game in the sense that they didn't try and evolve. They went, just basically went on to different things, you know, so mm. it's interesting to speculate, but there we have it. We've spent so much time talking about the history and the time and all. That's been a wonderful oh, yeah. conversation, but probably before we close off this half of the show, I should probably just sort of mention a couple of other songs in specific in terms, once again, wanting to sort of focus for a little bit on the nature of the jammy type songs, the songs that I think sound like they were made up on the spot versus the more composed songs. The yeah. opening cut on the album, which is really basically two songs. Half of and evolution. I've got to confess, I'm a bit of a sucker for those songs where they sing a song about a train and train is always in the cinema. It's the metaphor for a new future, going somewhere different. And of course, on an album like this, Evolution and the band changed from what they were with The Sunsets. That was a very apt metaphor. As I said earlier on, I'm not a fan of the lyrics on this album. And, you know, <laughs> we'll take you where you want to go. One time fast, another slow. Tracks are running through your brain. Hop aboard the music train. Now, that might be very typical of the time, but they haven't worn well. But on the other hand, Lindsay Bier's vocals are absolutely fantastic and if we just sort of say right it's just they're placeholders for his voice which at times on the album almost sounds to me like Rocky Erickson when he's hitting the high notes a bit of a reedy sort of voice in a way and I think you mentioned it earlier just the recording his, his voice is mixed so low it's, it's a bit of an acquired taste if they had have had more time they would have done something a little bit and made his vocals a bit stronger but it's funny you mentioned the lyrics to Music Train I don't hold a lot of store in lyrics probably of those some of those improvisational songs so much but I actually really like that little sort of thing saying hop aboard the music train you know we'll take you where you want to go so it's basically inviting the listener sort of reminds me in a way believe it or not it reminds me of Daddy Cool and Eagle Rock you know that starts with now listen now listen He's kind of saying, here we are, we'll take you where you want to go. It's even like, to my mind, you know, you remember that old-timey song, Alexander's Ragtime Band? Come on in here, come on in here, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Come on and listen to, you know, he's basically inviting the listener in to what they're going to do on the album. So that's why I like that kind of little intro music trains. I like what they're indicating and yes I completely get that this is an invitation to the listener hop on board and I can enjoy a train song as much as the next guy but um, <laughs> there's still something very much that it's locked into the day. One time fast another slow. Yeah it really sounds like what's the first thing I can think to rhyme with go? Yeah well done well done Liz. And I'm a lyric guy but 
Okay. I don't listen to this album so much for the lyrics, and there's still so much to be excited about on this song and, and on the album in general, of course. So we get Danny Davidson in the middle part where they're doing the jammy bit just before they lead into the evolution half of the song. He's really going into his wild man, Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa style of drumming. So I wouldn't be surprised if Jim Henson had listened to this and thought, I want Animal to be like Danny Davidson. <laughs> animal! It's right. just, he just <laughs> yeah. goes absolutely wild. And uh, Zach Zitnick just has a really cool wig out guitar solo on this yeah, as he does yeah. a bunch of songs on the album that's right yeah that's what I like about his guitar playing on this it's, it's got that kind of wig out sort of style yeah unfortunately that Zicknick didn't uh, end up staying with the band as, we, as we've talked about because mm. Lindsay Bierre was writing you know newer material for the second album and he wanted a more forceful guitar player and that was where Tim Gaze came into the equation but you know what? We're getting back to the songs, we've got to mention this. The downright weirdest part of the whole album is right at the end of the last track, Too Many Life. Yes. All of a sudden, <laughs> jokey sort of horror movie sound effects, like there's a creaking door and a, a screaming damsel and a moaning creature and heavy footsteps. <laughs> They just tacked it on seemingly as an afterthought. I mean, it's really bizarre, isn't it? It is very, very crazy. After singing lyrics like, you know, too many people using my time, blowing my mind, and then they just finish, <laughs> and it sounds like it's something out of a Lon Chaney Jr. movie. You know? That's right. A, the yeah. screaming those, damsel in one distress. Of those, one of those deadly earnest kind of moments. Right. Yeah, there's, there's some sound. There's a, yeah, it's just weird. It's very funny now, now that you think about it. You know, it's quite. they're kind of quite serious in a way. You know, they're, they're a serious rock band. It's all, you know, they've really got it happening. But then they just tack on this um, sound effects just for a bit of fun, I suppose. It lightens the mood a bit. Just imagine if you were listening to that album in 1969. You were listening to the record and that's where it finished. I mean, I'm sure that they were probably influenced by something like the end of Sgt. Pepper, the inner groove. <laughs> sense of weirdness and it was very typical for the time I'm sure that there are a bunch of other bands who were doing a similar sort of thing but yeah to just go from that song to that horror movie trope the first time I listened to this I was thinking what the hell is this yeah, it is kind of odd but yeah I like it it's just a nice oh, it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun <laughs> and yeah, probably just to finish off on this album as a summary if you haven't sort of gotten the picture I mean obviously this is an album that we both you know, really take a lot of pleasure in Galushanites, its follow-up, was definitely a more composed album and maybe had a wider sonic palette. I mean, there's a couple of songs in there which have got something of a country or folk pop sort of sound, like I Love You All and Take a Walk on a Foggy Morn.
this is more close to bluesy roots that I think a lot of other bands like, you know, maybe Buster Brown sort of followed up with in the 70s or a lot of the sort of stuff that Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs were doing. But I, I just love that this album exists. I love that they had that history of being able to sort of say, right, we'll record this album in two hours. And they came up with jammy songs like Feel Free and Falling <laughs> Up mixed with more composed songs. And I just wish that this was an album that was spoken about a lot more in the general populace. But, you know, thank goodness for people like yourself, Ian, and for people like Gil Matthews, who's giving his time and attention to albums like this locally. He loves the Evolution album too, oh, which bet. is really good. Yeah. Well, with, with his style of drumming, I'm sure he'd be a huge fan of Danny Davidson as well. And the sound on those two albums, that, that sort of aggressive style, and you know, given his background with Billy Thorpe, mm, the yeah. two of them would have been great on a double bill. Did he play in a, in a bill with him? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I've ever seen Bill with um, the Aztecs and Tamim Shad, although Tamim Shad did play a lot of the same sort of concerts. As I said, they ended up playing at Sunbury Festival, so they obviously played on the same stage as the Aztecs. Yep. You know, so this was the 72 model Tamim Shad with Tim Gaze on, on, and Richard Lockwood in there. So, you know, they obviously shared the same sort of stages. They played a place called, uh, as I mentioned, the Regent Theatre in December where the bonus tracks on the Galusha Nights album were recorded at. And certainly bands like Chain and Aztecs played at those kind of venues. So, you know, they were kind of moving in the same circles around that sort of 71, 72 period. They would have played with all those other bands, so Carson, Chain, the Aztecs, Spectrum, Blackfeather, all nice. of those bands. So it wouldn't surprise me if there were bills where Tamim Shad would have supported bands like the Aztecs. So, yeah, definitely. So we can finish off this segment of the show and just I do the recommendation that you should go to the Aztec Records website and purchase a copy of Evolution if you're not already an owner of this album, if you're listening to this episode and thinking, right, well, I've never heard of this band or I've heard of the band and been meaning to get the album. It's really been cleaned up very beautifully. And the second half of the CD is just a mind blower because it's got all the early Sunsets singles so it's really like two mm. different albums on the one album it's just absolutely yeah. fantastic and uh, I know just... it's a bit weird because um, oh, Gil actually was quite right in thinking well you know look if we're going to reissue the Evolution album it's only like what probably 30 odd minutes 35 38 minutes so why not fill it out with the rest of the um, earlier material the Sunsets and even the Four Strangers is the first Four Strangers mm. singles on this A-Sides and B-Sides so you know that's an extra 14 tracks or you know 13 tracks on top of the 11 from the uh, Evolution album so mm. yeah it kind of works as a package and there's enough interesting compilations albums out there of Australian bands of the day that'll be a conversation for another time but you know albums like Golden Miles and Boogie and Silver Roads which really do oh, tell I love all them a, yeah. an incredible story of our musical heritage so but we'll make that a story for another day I'd really love to have you back just to talk about these compilations in general so what we'll do now, we'll go to my good friend Dave Blum talking about the very first Tame Impala release, which was a self-titled EP. Have a listen to what he has to say, and he'll play a few musical examples. And then Ian and I will be back after that 
to talk about some of the very exciting Aztec Records releases over the next couple of months. One that's just come out and a few that are going to be coming out before the end of 2018, hopefully. So uh, that should be really interesting stuff. So we'll be back after Dave and you're listening to Love That Album, episode 115 with Morrison Ann. Oh, oh, oh. 
songs on the EP were selected from a list of approximately 20 songs that Kevin Parker had recorded as far back as 2003, which he had sent to the label Modular Records. Speaking about the EP release, Parker is quoted as saying, Most of the songs on the EP were never meant to be heard by the rest of Perth, let alone the rest of the world. They were just recorded for my own listening's sake, and burning a CD of it and putting it in my car and giving it to my friends. Parker has also revealed that the EP wasn't actually recorded in any way to create an EP. The songs on it weren't even recorded at the same time. They were done over a bunch of years. the songs live and to promote the album. Parker plays alongside Dominic Simper and some members of the Australian psychedelic rock band Pond, Jay Watson, Cam Avery and Julian Barbagallo. The talent of all of these musicians is evident when they swap instruments to play at gigs. The process for playing the songs live is to jam on the already recorded songs that Parker has produced and try to work them into a format that will work live. Sometimes they'll extend parts, sometimes they'll shorten it, and they'll just go with what seems to work well live. No Tame Impala song is jammed and worked out live first before it gets put down in the studio. It's the reverse of how most bands seem to work. their popularity and helped to promote their first three albums thus far. 
2010's Inner Speaker, which featured Desire Be, Desire Go from this EP, 2012's Lonerism and Currents from 2015. The raw energy of this EP and the density of great songs make it a worthy album to revisit on a regular basis. It's a fantastic introduction to the body of work that Tame Impala have amassed thus far, or it is something worthwhile to dig down into if your first introduction to the band was one of their later albums. Once again to Dave Blom for filling in for Eric so capably and he'll be back in September for episode 116 of Love That Album. I'm not sure what he has planned to cover but I'm sure I'll find out the day or so before I record. And what we'll do now is we'll talk a little bit about Aztec Records. I know I'm carrying on about this. I know but I'm not in Aztec Records pay packet. I'm just a big, big fan. Starting off, four CD collection with a couple of booklets I believe. I'm looking forward to picking up my copy. And this is a collection called the Go Records, the complete collection. And it's every song released by this record label that was around for about four or five years lifespan in the 60s called Go Records. So, Ian, if you can give us a little bit of a history about Go Records and where they evolved from. Yes, Go was one of the most important independent record companies in Australia in the early 60s, or mid-60s, I should say. The label was started because the Go Show was a TV pop program in Melbourne. To Australia's swing and his teenage show, Go! And here's that Go 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 man, Ian Tuffy. And that was screened out of what was the original Channel O station at mm. Nunawadding. That was a pop show. In Sydney, you had the likes of Bandstand and Six O'Clock Rock had been going for a while and the Johnny O'Keefe show and things like that. But um, hadn't really been a Melbourne show as such. So the Go Show was started by jazz musician Hori Dagi and he took the, the concept to ATVO in 1964 and apparently the Go Show screened for uh, a couple of years and, you know, all the big names of that era appeared, you know, Ronnie Burns and Normie Rowe and Billy Thorpe and Marcy Jones and Lynn Randell, Olivia Newton-John, The Loved Ones, Masters Apprentices, all the big name bands. But Melbourne had its own beat music scene and, you know, Bobby and Laurie were a duo that uh, were backed by the Rondells. They'd been performing around and they ended up appearing on the show. So 
at some point Ron Tudor was he was the um, I guess the music coordinator for the Go Show. He was headed up as the manager for the Go label. The label started in I guess probably early 1965, but by 1967, the 54 singles and about six EPs and six albums finally unfortunately may 1967 the go records label was folded but in that time they had some massive hits with bobby and laurie had a huge hit with i belong with you Billy Adams had a hit called Slow Down Sandy. The Henchmen had a hit with a reworking of the R&B tune, Rockin' Robin. The Cherokees had a couple of big hits. I've Been Trying, and then Omona and Minnie the Moocher. They were on the on the Go Records label. And MPD is probably the biggest band, or the other big band that came out, and they had a massive hit with Little Boy Sad. Mountain Lion Being untrue bunch of other tracks um there were i mean there was all sorts of other bands came in quite unknown bands like well these days tony and the chantelles peter briggs and the vikings the deacons which was a band from geelong they had a couple of really good female singers betty McQuaid hit midnight bus was reissued on the go label yvonne barrett had a hit with a song called send her away there was another singer called joy lemon she had a very interesting song called from the shadows to the sun if we were turned on by evening, staying at home, and things had much stronger meaning than those we'd known. Just an amazing label, and I know a lot of 60s collectors who have just gone out of their way to collect the Go label because it's so iconic, and it had a purple label with big gold lettering, Go, you know, mm-hmm. in uppercase, with two exclamation marks, <laughs> Go! It's, it's basically like, this is what's happening. Go-Go dancing was big in the 60s, so the Go records and the Go show, that's what it was all about. The music was fairly up-tempo and vibrant and poppy. Yes. It's poppy. Look, it's beat pop. It's a, there's a little bit of garagey rock kind of happening. Things like Bobby and Laurie, I Belong With You, it's basically just beat pop. And there's things like the Cherokees when they had hits with um, Minnie the Moocher and Omona. They were more kind of, I guess, jug bandy with sort of swing kind of overtones. But then there were the big sort of pop moments, things like Yvonne Barrett. One of the other bands is the 18th Century Quartet, which was Hans Poulsen's band. And Keith Glass also was in that band. He ended up, hmm. ended up going to a band called Campact, they had some really nice singles on the Go labels. So the Go Records was always a big collectible. Apparently the Go show so well remembered. I mean, I don't even remember it because I was still in primary school at the, at the time. I don't remember ever, ever seeing it. But I've seen film clips now on YouTube. Very, very grainy black and white film clips of all these bands. And, you know, it, it looks like it was a lot of fun. Teenage audiences were invited into the studio to watch the recording of the show and 
there was something like 130 episodes over a period of a couple of years. So it was a very, very important label. Uh, you know, there was a lot of other Aussie independent labels around at that time which were distributed by festival, you know, the Sunshine label and the Spin label and mm. Promotion and Clarion and all these sort of bands. But the Go labels just was distributed by Astor Records. I had a bunch of records, I think, as a child, mm. which had the Astor label. Yes. I, I remember that well. Yes, the Astor label, that was a very recognisable label. So collectors love the Go label because they, it's definable. They know exactly how many singles and EPs they need in the collection. It had the purple label as a, and also, as I said, with the big gold lettering, Go and the two exclamation marks. So it holds a lot of nostalgia for people who were there at the time. And a couple of years ago, they had the Go Show Gold tours where... A lot of these people were singing again. Normie Rowe was on the lineup. Johnny Young, he was mm. one of the compares at one point. So, you know, all the names from the 60s or the Melbourne scene are still tied in with the Go label and the Go show. Anyway, so Gil came up with the idea. He licensed all the tracks from the current licensing holder, and he's a big collector of the label. I know he's got all the singles and all the EPs and the albums, so he's remastered every track, and it's something like, yeah, what is it, 130 tracks on four CDs. It's a beautiful four-disc package. It's got a big fold-out digipack thing with, yeah, with the two booklets. And, yeah, I do the liner notes. I'm basically the guy that does the liner notes for Gil for all the reissues. So that was a lot of fun. That and, would have been um, such a long effort with that yeah. many songs. That would have taken him forever. When did he first approach you, say, I've got this idea to do the Go collection? Oh, look, probably about 18 months ago. And uh, I guess earlier on in the year, it took him weeks and weeks to remaster the tracks because he's so fastidious in a lot of cases some of the tracks had been digitized and over the years by other people and he he had to kind of redo the digitizing and you know obviously a lot of the master tapes no longer exist so Gil is the master of the disc dub and then remastering and he's got all the equipment you know that's why he runs the label because he's just like a, an absolute fanatic for the actual remastering of it he's the best person in Australia for doing that sort of thing and the CDs sound absolutely fantastic just got a really, really, really good presence. You know, they're that kind of trebly, bright, kind of 60s recording quality, but mm. the songs are, you know, there's just so many great songs. So Gil basically had been working on the remastering for months and months. He basically said, look, you know, you, you do, do the liner notes. There was a lady who was part of the scene, a lady called Susie Gamble, who had a lot to do with the scene at the time, and she had a lot of information about band lineups that, you know, she helped me with. She sort of said, oh, that guy's name, his surname was spelt this way, not that way. You know, this was, I found out the, the line lineups for most of the bands and in conjunction with Susie we double checked all the facts and you know got everything right in terms of the, the actual little potted histories about each of the artists that was the fun part because for people who aren't so much aware when you license material for a compilation such as this you have to be very very specific in booklets with what's called the label copy which is the getting all the tracks names correct and the songwriting names and then all the publishing lines mm. that's my background i've done a lot of licensing work i used to work for raven records so that was my right. kind of thing to, is to do what you call the label copy so you basically have to make sure you've got all the track information correct the songwriters as, as i said you get the publishing lines from apra and stuff like that you have to make an application to apra to get the what they call the publishing lines so that's why there's two booklets, because there's so many tracks, you know, 130 tracks across four discs. 
So we had to do one booklet with um, the liner notes about the story of the label and the individual bands, and then the other 12-page booklet, which is basically the, the label copy and the tracking information. Goodness. You can pour over it if you wish. It's all the information's there. For those of us who are hard of seeing these days, got to have their glasses on. You really, <laughs> you really struggle to kind of read the information, but it's all there if you want to actually know who actually wrote Billy Adams' song, Change Your Mind. Oh, yeah, John Farrah. He was in The Strangers, and you know, you, then you can look at the story of the band. You know, See, and, That's the final point I wanted to bring up about this. I was waiting for you to talk about The Strangers because that's our link to the first part of the show. This was the very band that the Four Strangers had to change their name to, the Four Strangers, because of that Melbourne band that was signed to the Go label. That's right, exactly. Strangers were Melbourne institution. They'd been going long before the Go label had even started. They were one of the bastions of the Melbourne early 60s scene. Um, they played all the local dances, the town halls. They backed all the big name solo artists. They were a very proficient and uh, exciting band in their own right. They were engaged as the house band for the Go show. Wow. So they basically packed back. They basically appeared on every episode or literally every episode, and backed all the all the singers that came into the studio. So they were very, very proficient uh, musicians. Peter Robinson was the bass player, and John Farrow was the, the guitar player. Who went and on he, to, to do yes. stuff for Olivia Newton-John. Exactly, yeah, mm. that's right. He ended up going to the UK first, and he worked with people like Hank Marvin and the Shadows, and, yep. and then went to the States and was basically Olivia Newton-John's guitar player and, and musical director for years. He wrote things like Hopelessly Devoted to You, for the, for the Grease soundtrack, probably Olivia Newton-John's biggest hit. So this is where John Farrow made his start, and he produced a lot of these Go record sessions. He wrote some of the songs. As we mentioned, he was the, the guitar or one of the guitar players in the, the Go show house band, The Strangers. And they have one single, the odd thing is, they have one single on the Go label, which um, is the only thing they did for the Go label, and they ended up having a few hits in the early 70s with things like Lady Scorpio and things like that. But the song that they cover on their Go record single is a track called Western Union, which was by uh, an American band called The Five Americans, I think was the original band, and, and a really nice jangly pop song. And it, it's got the staccato Morse code kind of signal as a kind of hook in the song, so it's yes. quite nice. Western Union, if anyone knows that song. Yeah, they only had one single on the Go label, hmm. but they were probably the most important band in the whole kind of story. <laughs> So nice. it's nice that they're on here. But, yeah, bingo, we've made the connection. <laughs> there was a band in Newcastle that started out in 1960, 1963 or 1964. They called themselves The Strangers. And then all of a sudden they kind of got wind. Oh, wait on. There's this really famous band in, <laughs> in Melbourne called The Strangers. Uh-oh, we, you know, we'll change our name to The Four Strangers. Oh, no, we better change it to something else. We'll become The Sunset. Yes, that's the connection. There you go. Maybe only three, four degrees of separation between Tamam. <laughs> 
I'm shud and hopelessly devoted to you. But you can make that link. So I just wanted to talk about another couple of albums that are on the horizon for Aztec. One that I took huge interest in, because I didn't even know that this existed, was the first album, well, I'm guessing it's the first album, for Renee Gayo. She was in a band called Sun. Did you read the message on your So tell me a little bit about Sun and what this album's all about. Sun was a Sydney band. They were probably what you might call a jazz, fusion-y, progressive rock band. A bit like Ayers Rock? Yeah, kind of. Not quite as uh, jammy in a way. Mm. Ayers Rock would go off on their lengthy, jammy sort of songs, but they they also had some type rock sort of songs. But Sun were, were not quite as commercial. I guess they'd been going for a couple of years and Rene Gaia... She would have only been about 18 or 19 at the time in the early 70s and they got to record one album just called Sun or sometimes it's called Sun 1972 because the cover has 1972 for some reason on, on it and it's, it's just like an impressionistic painting. It's got a, a yellowy sun with a blue background although there are some covers which have different colours on them but I'd call them sort of like a, a jazz rock band. They had, they, had, they had, you know, sort of horns and stuff like that. And Renee obviously was still trying to find her, I guess, niche, um, her sort of funk, sort of soul niche. She was adept at singing basically anything, you know. She would have sung some jazzy kind of tunes, but I guess they had a bit of a soul influence as well. There were a lot of bands in the early 70s that had horns, bands like Heart and Soul, Jefferson John's uh, bands had horns. I guess they had a saxophone and maybe trumpet. Um, there was another band called Southern Contemporary Rock Assembly. So there was a lot of bands playing in that Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chicago-y kind of sound. Kush were like that as well. They mm-hmm. had horns. So they're kind of in that vein. Look, it's an interesting record. It's a very collectible album. I've got um, a copy. Yeah, fortunately, in my record collecting over the years, since the 70s and 80s, I've bought a lot of these records, and I used to pick them up cheap at record fairs and things like that. So I've actually got a couple of copies of the Sun album. (laughs) Yes, it was Renee Gaia's first band, or one of her early bands, and then after that band fell apart, she joined a band called Mother Earth, and then she ended up having her band uh, was uh, Renee Gaia and Sanctuary, then it was the Renee Gaia band. So yeah, it's a nice kind of star. Uh, Look, honestly, she, she doesn't stand out particularly strongly on the album because I guess it's more the instrumental side of the band was probably a little bit more prominent. Mm. Probably the song that there's a ballady sort of song that she sings on there which is called, I don't have the album in front of me but I think it's called Feelings or Moments or something like that but anyway it's one of the albums that Gil wants to put out. Look going back years and years ago when Gil started the Aztec label between myself and another record collector and dealer, a guy called Glenn Terry, and then also Ted and Ted um, Lethborg was the original label manager. We all got together and we basically put together a, a wish list of Australian albums from the 60s and 70s to actually put out, and there was, I don't know, I don't know, 250 albums. 
So progressively over the last 10 or 12 years, Gill with the Aztec label has been putting all these, many of these records out. So I guess this is one of the kind of ones that he's finally got around to. I don't know. I don't, mm. you know Gill, he sets his schedule and then he kind of contacts me and says, Oh, need the need the liner notes for this now. You need to have it to me, you know, in the next couple of weeks we're doing this album. So I never know what point he, he's up to because basically, you know, it's his label. He does all the business side of things and, uh, yeah, I just write the notes and help with the archives, you know, find photos and the record covers and stuff like that. Right. Anyway, so, yeah, that's the Sun album. So the final album I wanted to ask you about, and I didn't even know this existed. I thought there was only one album by this band or rather this alter ego indelible mertzeps have an album called terminal buzz now i knew and i'm a big fan of warts up your nose and i'm talking about the Mm. name of the album i'm not talking about your personal facial stature Indelible Mertzeps were the alter ego of Spectrum when they wanted to do shorter songs with slightly double entendre lyrics and a little bit more poppy so they could get other gigs besides the long jammy sort of gigs that they were getting. This was their alter ego. But tell us about Terminal Buzz and is it any different stylistically from what they did with What's Up Your Nose? Ah, no, well this is, yeah, this is interesting because, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, Spectrum were basically, well, Mike Rudd always considered Spectrum to be a concert band even though they had a number one hit with I'll Be Gone. They wanted to have an alter ego to play the more danceable songs and so Mike, in his genius way of thinking, wrote down Spectrum backwards and it ends up being Mertzeps, M-U-R-T-C-E-P-S. Very, very inspired. So he, he actually just called it the indelible Mertzeps. That Warts Up Your Nose album's a fantastic record. It was technically the third album, so Spectrum had Spectrum Part 1, then Miles Ago, which Aztec have also put out. So then Indelible Mertzeps, their album they called Warts Up Your Nose, had the hit Esmeralda on it. So they continued as Spectrum, and, but they would still play some gigs as Mertzeps or Indelible Mertzeps. In fact, sometimes they ended up just calling themselves Spectrum slash Mertzeps, you know, Mm. so they combined the two bands. There was actually a fourth studio album in there as well called Testimonial, so that may end up being an Aztec release eventually as well. So that was the uh, combined name of Spectrum Indelible Mertzeps, and Terminal Buzz is actually a live album. It was the last concert they recorded as Spectrum Stroke Mertzeps, so it's the dual identity Spectrum Mertzeps, Terminal Buzz, it's a double live album. So it's basically just the, just everything Spectrum played at that time, plus all the Mertzet danceable songs. So, yeah, it's a really good record. It, uh, once again, it's hard to come by these days to try and find an original album. So I guess Gil's got that sorted out for, for licensing to actually reissue. Mike Rudd, fortunately, he got back the rights from EMI some years ago. Finally, after years and years of chasing EMI to get the rights returned to him, he owns the Spectrum Mertzeps material now. So I guess that's how Gil's licensed that he's gone to Mike. So yeah, look, these are all on Gil's proposed release schedules. Once again, I really don't know at what point he's at within actually getting them released or working on them. One of the other things he's been talking about for a long time 
is a comprehensive Zoot compilation. Yeah, I mean, it'd be every single they recorded and, and they did an album, so there'd be album tracks and then also there was the reunion in the early 2010s, sadly before Daryl Cotton passed away. But mm-hmm. yeah, so it'd be all the early bubblegum zoo stuff plus all the material that Rick Springfield wrote and recorded with the band, things like The Freak and Eleanor Rigby and yep. One Times, Two Times, Three Times, Four, all those kind of songs. So that was another one that Gil's been talking about for a long time, but I I've no idea where that got to in the schedule. And the other one is the Colourballs live at Sunbury album, Summer Jam. I saw on the Facebook page that he said, this is a few weeks ago, he said, now that I've completely finished with the co-records mastering, this is the next thing I'm working on. So that's oh, good. That looks yeah. like that's what he's working on right now. Well, yeah, once again, he'll. Um, I've been trying to put together the notes for that over the last year or so, but it'll be a case of, right, we're ready to do it now, so I have to finish the notes. <laughs> but the thing is, with the Summer Jam album, the track God was added to one of the Coloured Balls CD reissues on Aztec, so some of that material has been out, but the actual original Summer Jam album in its entirety, this is what he wants to do. But here's the hook. Lobby recorded half a dozen tracks in the early 90s that have never seen release. And I believe Gill has been working on remaster or mastering that for reissue. So maybe they'll be added as kind of like in addition to the Summer Jam tracks, which is basically the Colour Balls with help from Billy Thorpe and Leo DeCastro on vocals. Apparently, I haven't heard the tracks yet, but there's some this material that Lobby recorded in the studio studio in the in the 90s might be included but yes yeah, so That'd be thrilling that'd be great yeah you know gil's been doing some great reissues the other two albums that i wanted to mention that came out on aztec early this year was jesus christ superstar um, yes was a yes. live recording from 1973 of the original stage show every time i look at you i don't understand why you let things you did get so out of John English and yeah Trevor White and John English yeah that never been heard before one of the people that was involved with the show Peter oh, his surname escapes me at the moment anyway it's on the line and he recorded one of the shows in 1973 
the Jesus Christ Superstar show was a very, very fondly remembered, hugely popular stage show from the early 70s. And I remember seeing it at the Palais Theatre. I think oh, there you go. <laughs> I never got the chance to go. I have this strong memory of close to the end of the show while John English is singing Superstar and he's doing cartwheels and somersaults and all that sort of thing and it was just immensely exciting. I, mean, I, was, I would have been all of eight years old but I'd you would have been, yeah. seen well, anything I think like I, it. I'm uh, a couple of years older than you so I probably would have been 13 and um, yeah but a couple of friends of mine that I went to school with went to see it and I never got the chance to see it but they raved about it so yeah this was 1973 so, so that was a really nice release. Uh, and the other one that I really think is probably one of the best ones that Gil's done on Aztec was the compilation of the singer Leo DiCastro with all his bands. I am a lineman for the county Harvest and um, Leo De Castro Band and all that sort of stuff. That was a really fabulous release, a double CD release of all his material. So that's worth getting hold of as well. A lot of stuff to be uh, going out and listening to and purchasing. And uh, I, I just think, you know, thank goodness for Gil Matthews. Australian rock music's history is very, very safe in his hands. And I mean, as it was for many years, I guess, with Raven Records, with um, yeah. Glenn A. Baker doing great work with those anthologies that he was putting out. And, uh, Golden Miles that I mentioned earlier on. It's yeah. such a fantastic release. But even going back with the Raven to the early 80s with their Ugly Things compilations and things right, like yep. that. Yeah. Yep, I've got yeah. one one of those compilations on CD and it's so amazing. I, I tend to think this is a point I forgot to bring up earlier but it seems to me that with Australian Golden Oldies Radio and it's been a, you know, years and years since I listened but it seems that with you know the Golden Oldies Radio and with the mainstream rock radio it seems that Australian music was invented in the 70s and you know apart from maybe a handful of cuts from the likes of the Masters Apprentices and you know, maybe Eleanor Rigby by Zoot if we're lucky. You know, the recordings on Go Records are never played. You don't ever hear about it. And all these names, unfortunately, they're no puns intended. They're strangers to me. And mm. that's why I'm just so thrilled that people like Gil and yourself are saying, well, this needs to be out there. It's great music. It's not just important to our history. It's great music of itself and you need to be aware of it. It is very exciting and I, I love being um, you know, part of these projects. You know, that's a good way, as you point out, for people to actually listen to this stuff because, yeah, you don't hear it anywhere else unless you've collected the records yourself or are, are particularly aware of it. They're, these compilations are just a perfect forum to hear this stuff all right well that i think is probably a good place to end the show we've had a lot of great australian rock music talk here and once again my huge thanks to you being on the show and i know that we've made tentative plans we've cut out a list of other bands to talk about on future shows so <laughs> nice nice to know that you're going to be an ongoing part of the podcast i'm really really 
thrilled to have you on in. So well, no I'm, worries, um, Morris. Thanks. So once again, uh, listeners out there who want to uh, get a copy of the Australian Encyclopedia of Rock and Pop, they can get it from thirdstonepress.com.au. Or if you live in Melbourne, go up to Rocksteady Records, or I'm sure any of the really great bookshops. Uh, about town can order in a copy yep that's right yeah pat's got copies at rocksteady i know the guys at vicious soft collectibles have got copies yeah but uh, there's a couple of ways of getting hold of it i wholeheartedly recommend that any fan of australian rock and really any fan of rock music history in general if you love reading about that sort of thing this book is absolutely essential so um, go out and get yourself a copy i highly recommend it just a couple of housekeeping things to finish off the show if you want to join the facebook group to carry on the discussion about australian music or any music at all we're not going to limit it go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album you want to send me an email rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au and what else i think that might be it for the correspondence type of stuff next month's program episode 116 I've got a very special guest co-presenter. We're going to be talking about what was, I don't know if you would call it a comeback album, but certainly a very big change in direction album for Emmylou Harris from the mid-90s, her album Wrecking Ball. And my co-presenter will be the guitarist from a mainstay of the Australian blues scene from up in Sydney, a fellow called Shane Pacey, guitarist for the Bondi right. Cigars. And also I think he's got a trio now just called the Shane Pacey Trio. And we're going to be discussing Emmylou Harris's Wrecking Ball. I asked him, give me 10 albums that you'd like to talk about, any of them equally. And there are a bunch of albums that would have quite, I would have been quite happy to talk about. But when he mentioned Wrecking Ball, I thought, how have I gone this far into the podcast's life without talking about Wrecking Ball or Emmylou Harris in general? So I imagine that the talk will go well beyond that album. We'll be talking about some of her great earlier, more country-ish albums. But the focus, the idea will be to talk about Wrecking Ball. Looking immensely forward to that, having Shane on. And uh, yeah, we'll be talking about Emmylou Harris. That'll be a lot of fun. What else can I say except thanks so much again, Ian, for joining us on the podcast. And I'll be putting some links on to the show notes to people to uh, check out your own writings and being able to get hold of a copy of the encyclopedia. Anything else that you'd like to finish off with? Anything else? Any final thoughts? No, just uh, thanks for the invite. It's always fun. And just go and listen to lots and lots of this stuff. Indeed. That's why we're talking (laughs) about it. We want to encourage you people out there to listen to it. Until next month, please be nice to each other. Once again, my final thanks again to Dave Blom for filling in for Eric on the album I Love segment. He'll be back next month. And Tom Quee will be doing his uh, Love That Album compilation edition for next month. And once again, thanks again to Terry Frost for doing it for this month. Lots of thanks to lots of people. But they're all wonderful, wonderful people who want to share their love of music with you. So go through the archives and listen to this sort of stuff. So until next month for episode 116, be nice to each other. Listen to lots of great music. Watch some great films. Watch some great surfing films if you can find them. And we'll be back with some more music talk for you in September. So until then, all the best. Cheers.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 